Hi, this is Brandon, and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. And today's episode is titled, A Caleb Generation. So, Moses was stuck. He was on the wrong side of a river, and there was nothing he could do about it. The Lord himself had told Moses he would not be permitted to cross that river, even though he could clearly see the Lord's promise right in front of him. The mightiest prophet of God who had ever existed, who sat in God's own presence until his whole face glowed, who personally led the people out of slavery from Egypt, who had been the conduit of miracle after miracle to provide for them, and who had successfully shepherded them for decades, was blocked from entering the promised land because of unbelief. And he wasn't alone. Everyone else of his generation were similarly cursed to die in the wilderness, within sight of the promise. It would take an entirely new generation with different vision to cross over into the blessing and to be the ones that fulfilled God's vision of a people for his purposes, to build a holy land with him. There was, as we know, an exception. Along with the younger generation were Joshua and Caleb, who had first seen the blessings of the new land that God said he was giving them and had believed God despite the clear and obvious dangers that awaited them and had encouraged Moses' generation to lay their fears at God's feet and rise up and take the land. Only these two faithful elders would be permitted to lead the younger generation into that new, unknown, and intimidating adventure. They certainly needed the leadership and wisdom of Moses' generation, but only Joshua and Caleb were judged suitable for this leadership because out of all Israel's elders, only they believed God despite much uncertainty. Today, the elder church finds itself in a similar quandary. Like Moses, they've been in charge for decades. There are certainly giants of Christianity who have faithfully presented the words of God to their flocks. There's no doubt that those ministries have led their people out of bondage and helped maintain order and discipline in their camps for many years. But God has issued a new call. It's time to move into something new, something long prophesied and long promised, a new and rich home for his people. And the younger generation has heard the call and is responding, while the older generation of leaders looks at the very real challenges and giants in the land and trembles at the dangers and refuses to cross into the land. It's not that there is no risk. There is definitely great danger and there are real and powerful forces arrayed against the church. And it will take the Lord's wisdom and authority and power to kill the giants and to bring his order and peace to this new land. But just like Moses and the unbelieving elders of Israel, today's elders counsel their flocks and each other that it's not safe, that the Lord simply cannot be commanding this new situation, that the giants are too large and powerful. In fact, they'd rather go back to Egypt than move forward. Well, In case it's not already obvious, I'm speaking here of the conservative church fighting to maintain the status quo, to conserve the old ways at all costs, if not to return to an even earlier morality. But a younger generation has listened to the glowing reports of those scouts who have seen the land. These upstarts have heard the Lord calling them into something new, and they're looking across the river at a promised land of every tribe, tongue, and people in remarkable diversity. They see Galatians 3.28 that there's neither Jew nor Greek, 
slave nor free, male nor female, in a new light. They reject patriarchal teaching against women leading the church. They reject authoritarian teachers who treat them as servants, if not slaves, instead of equal citizens in the kingdom. They see the call to Peter in Acts 11 to mean that even LGBTQ people have been made clean, and thus they refuse to continue excluding them from full participation. They see that call about neither Jew nor Greek as an invitation to welcome diverse and often confounding expressions of Christian faith and doctrine from other cultures, treasuring them just as richly as their own evangelical upbringing. And they do see the giants in the land, those challenges that are certain to come with inviting into the kingdom people who don't look like them or think like them or even worship like them, but they're fearless in the face of those challenges. And so they've been stepping out from beneath the control of the elder generation and are beginning to actually take the land themselves. Churches are rising up that are willing to go at risk with the Lord and reject discrimination and fear and especially reject the naysaying call of the self-appointed elders. And they're already beginning to experience the blessings of that new land. Those churches who have been willing to move into that land of exclusion and welcome have proclaimed glowing reports of the fruit, the picture of clusters of grapes so large that it takes two men to carry them. And the younger generation believes those reports and is willing to join the migration into that new land. That migration isn't without opposition. There are plenty of giants in the land, not just spiritual forces, but practical issues the migrants must face. How do they integrate such diversity to truly become one people? How do they deal with excesses and abuses that for years were suppressed by authoritarian control and public share and fear of shunning? How do they overcome the fear of otherness that's been programmed into them for generations? And how do they honor and love those that they are spiritually leaving behind, even as they must physically remain in relationship? But like Caleb, they say, from Numbers 13.30, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. And from Numbers 14.7-9, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And the elder generation is being left behind on the other side of that river. And they're angry, and they're fighting back. It's not enough for them to let the migrants go. They, they insist on remaining together on the wrong side of the Jordan. As with Caleb and Joshua from Numbers 14.10, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And honestly, there are even calls today from conservative preachers to execute LBGTQ people. Now, surely this is not a perfect analogy. I know better than that. The elder generation isn't dying out before the migration begins. The Jordan River won't part itself for a single massive movement into the promised land. That's probably not going to be some Jericho moment when everyone marches around a city and the opposition falls and the enemies scatter in fear. But I think it's still a useful picture of what's going on at this moment in the church's history. The younger generation have heard a new call is acting on it, is confounding the elders, and is becoming the people of God in a way that hasn't been seen before on the earth. They're taking the land and claiming the promises of God as their own. It's it's not some set of physical promises. 
It's seeing the spiritual kingdom of God beginning to appear in all of its manifold and diverse and multicolored rainbow unified glory. And I suspect that the Lord's response to the doubting generation will be much as it was to Israel. From Numbers 14, 22 through 24, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. And the Lord then proceeded to bluntly state his own direct pushback against those who'd refused to trust him. From Numbers 14, 34 through 35, You will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil generation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. Now, interestingly, even after that hard word from the Lord, there were some of that older generation in Israel who still tried to move on their own into the promised land. They wanted to own the land without trusting the Lord. And just as the Lord had warned them, they failed. The inhabitants of the land overcame them. Numbers 14, uh, verses 39 through 45, tells how the Amalekites and the Canaanites struck down the rebel warriors who thought they were fulfilling the Lord's promise themselves. So trying to inhabit the promised land without believing the new direction that the Lord had given proved impossible. And those giants were too strong, and the people who tried by their own strength were slaughtered. So to enter a kingdom of every tribe and people and tongue and nation, from Revelation 7-9, a migrant generation must first believe the Lord inviting them into a new promised land. And they must reject the call to fear its dangers and challenges. And ultimately, they must not fight in their own strength, but let the Lord win the battles. See, I was raised on much fear of the giants. I heard the reports of the spies describing the new land, and I could only see the challenges. Just as the sons of Israel saw the Nephilim inhabitants of Canaan as giant angel-human hybrid demigods inhabiting the land, I saw the issues of an inclusive kingdom as insurmountable demonic strength. Even stories of amazing grace and ministry and salvations and changed lives and even the presence of the Holy Spirit in those inclusive congregations was not enough to convince me. No matter how real and huge was the fruit being shown by those scouts, I responded just like the people of Israel. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, from Numbers 14.2. But finally I heard the Lord speaking to my heart to put away my fears and... I stepped across that line, so to speak, to stand with today's Joshua's and Caleb's, who are calling the people into belief and trust, and to reject our doubt that the Lord can do miracles beyond our ability to comprehend. And I'm thankful in particular for the internet and for social media. Despite its real dangers and risks, it's created a younger generation with the ability to see the Lord's Spirit in peoples who are very different from themselves despite diverse appearances and practices and doctrines. They hear the older generation counseling various forms of xenophobia, that fear of others, and they've rejected those calls. They think globally. They reject discrimination of all kinds. They're not always wise and they need elder leadership, but they see with vision that the elders often lack. 
And perhaps this truly is the grace of the Lord. For the first time in history, we see a generation arising that can actually fulfill Revelation 7-9. But it's not going to look like the older generation thought. So here's where this elder generation, of which I'm a part, can still participate. As with Joshua and Caleb, the younger generation need elder leadership to navigate the battles that are going to follow, and sometimes to remind them that the battle isn't theirs, it's the Lord's, and that leading with worship is how to win. And so, in his grace and mercy, the Lord has not yet stopped calling his people from the elder generation. Remember that he gave Israel ten times to repent and be willing to enter the land before finally cutting them off. And while I consider myself, so to speak, late to the party, only recently finding myself on the side of these Joshua's and Caleb's, I think that there's grace for me and other elders like me to enter the land with the younger generation. And I trust that some things that the Lord has graciously and exceedingly patiently taught me over the years can be used to shepherd this younger generation and help them win those battles that are going to follow. There are still giants, and the land must still be conquered. There will be battles. But by God's grace, we can be confident that there's nothing that can stand against us. Finally, I'm well aware that I'm skipping over any discussion of what the elder generation emphatically considers sin or heresy or apostasy. And this essay's really not intended to address such concerns. I've already written and said much about LGBTQ issues and many challenges I see in the evangelical church. And I'd refer you to those discussions either on my blog or on this podcast in previous episodes. Ultimately, my sense in this season is that the Lord is explicitly calling his people to set aside a number of long-cherished doctrinal positions. He's given the younger generation open eyes and a discerning spirit to see a truth that's much more inclusive than the previous generation. It's much like Peter leading the Jewish Christians to welcome the Gentiles into the kingdom. And he's challenging his people to step across that river with him into the new land. So, like Caleb, I see before us a spiritual land of milk and honey and giant clusters of grapes, promising an unbelievable bounty of new wine, and it truly excites me. So I've told the Lord, yes, I believe, and yes, I will follow you into that new land, even though I can't see yet how you will slay the giants. But you did it once with a young boy armed with nothing but a sling and some stones, and so I know you could do it again through this younger generation. So I'm in. So I ask you, my listeners, are you with me? If you are, well, let's roll. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.